Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Boston Bar Association. My name is Peter Vettieri. I'm the co-chair of the Environmental Litigation Committee of the BBA's Environmental and Energy Law Section. I'm also an attorney at the law firm of Burns and Levinson LLP. You've all probably heard of PFOS by now. These ubiquitous forever chemicals are per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, a class of thousands of man-made chemicals characterized by their long chains of carbon-fluorine bonds. First developed in the 1930s, they've been widely used in commercial products since the 1950s, particularly for making coatings and products that resist heat, oil, stains, grease, and water, such as waterproof clothing, stain-resistant furniture, food packaging, non-stick cookware, and firefighting foam. They are called forever chemicals because they do not break down in the environment, they can move through soils and contaminate drinking water sources, and they bioaccumulate in fish and wildlife. Exposure to humans can be caused by consuming PFAS-contaminated uh, water or food, or by using products that contain PFAS, and they can cause a number of adverse health effects in humans. Many states, and more recently the EPA, have established regulatory limits on the amount of PFAS that can safely be in the environment. This has prompted a wave of litigation relating to PFAS exposure and liability. Today, we have three members of the bar uh, who have litigated PFOS cases in Massachusetts state and federal courts. They are here to provide a glimpse of different legal theories that can arise when dealing with these wide-ranging and persistent chemicals in the environment. Bob Cox, a partner at uh, Bowditch & Dewey, LLP, will discuss the PFOS multi-district litigation in federal court. Peter Durning, partner at Burns & Levinson, LLP, will discuss PFOS claims under Chapter 21E, Massachusetts Hazardous Waste Cleanup Statute. And John Gardella, shareholder at CMBG3 Law, uh, will round things out with an overview of PFOS class actions, medical monitoring claims, and consumer fraud claims. This program is the first of a two-part series on PFOS in the Commonwealth. This PFOS litigation update will be followed by a PFOS regulatory update in mid-June, presented by the BBA's uh, Hazardous and Solid Waste Committee. Uh, that will cover recent developments in the PFOS regulatory environment. Um, and now I will hand the Zoom over to Bob Cox to kick things off. Uh, thank you, Pete. Let me get my uh, slides up here so we can get going. Give me a moment to queue them up. From the beginning. Can you see them okay? Hearing no response, I, I assume I'm good to go. So I will go. So I'm gonna to talk to you about the, uh, a case uh, that's been pending in South Carolina for four and a half years now. It is the uh, AFFF um, multi-district litigation claim or MDL um, that began, as I said, you know, four and a half years ago in 2018. Um, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you an overview. Uh, then I'll talk somewhat about what MDL is because it was new to me and I think new to many of us. Then I'll discuss some of the issues and the status of what's going on in this case. And then finish off by saying, well, what's next? What's going to happen now? And the connection to Massachusetts for this case, this matter, this pending in South Carolina, are a number of cases that originated in Massachusetts. Uh, I've been involved in one of them involving Barnstable County, there are others, Town of Air, Town of Barnstable, Town of Westfield uh, have all been involved in this case. There are others. 
And the Commonwealth, the Attorney General's Office, got involved filing directly in the case about a year ago, uh, about a year ago this month. So let me get started with an overview. As I said, these cases have to do with um, the aqueous um, film-forming foam cases, which have PFAS or PFOA. Uh, the plaintiffs initially were largely water provider, providers, excuse me, uh, that they're seeking to recover the cost to remove PFAS you know, from their systems and to provide clean water to be uh, in compliance with state and federal requirements. They allege, the plaintiffs allege that the contaminants uh, impacted groundwater uh, with PFAS and that they're located near military bases and airports, other industrial sites uh, that have used um, a triple F. And the matter began, uh, or matters were transferred uh, to a single judge, a single judge in the district court in South Carolina. There are three categories of, of defendants here, foam manufacturers, 3M, DuPont, some well-known names out there, Tyco, governmental entities, Air Force, and some other private parties. And the claims are assert asserted for property damages uh, by the water providers and for property damages as well. And more recently, or within the past several years and, and really amped up, uh, maybe in the last six months, are personal injury claims and claims for medical monitoring or potential future injury. Initially, my memory is that we're about 60, I'm going to go back to look, about 60 or 80 cases that were transferred to this, to this court. Now there are, as of a Monday, 4,000 4,494 pending claims. So before I get into the details here, what is MDL? What is this thing? Well, it's uh, created by statute, created by Congress in 1968, and they bring together cases that share common issues. They get transferred to a single district judge before the same judge, the court, same judge, handles all discovery and all pretrial proceedings. There's an MDL panel consisting of seven members. Uh, they're appointed by, uh, uh, by, the, by, by the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court, sorry, uh, that transfers cases to a transferee court for coordinated and consolidated pretrial proceedings. It's a very broad mandate. And here's some of the language in the statute. Each action that is transferred shall be remanded by the panel at or before the conclusion of such pretrial proceedings to the district from which it was transferred unless it shall be terminated. So the idea is that the work takes place uh, in the MDL forum, uh, and uh, then they'd be sent back uh, to the originating court for trial. But typically, typically they are, there are bellwether trials, and I'll talk about that in a moment, that get scheduled, and concurrently often is mediation. And through both those processes, it reveals the strengths and weaknesses and in practice, few cases go back to trial. Most of them, most of them get settled and don't go back to transfer court. A um, couple other things. Um, this stuff sounds kind of like a class action, uh, but they're different. Uh, class actions consolidate all claims and all plaintiffs you know, into one lawsuit. The MDL merely moves all cases to one court. Class actions combine the cases for the entire process the MDL justice for this pretrial process. And the MDL, there's not a class certification. No. Rule 23 has no ap application here. So a couple more things. MDL by the numbers, since it's history or its history since its inception, 
have uh, created about uh, 1,800 litigation dockets involving over a million cases. They encompass airplane crashes, uh, single accidents, train accidents, um, some mass torts, asbestos, drugs, uh, product liability type cases. Currently, there are over 400,000 cases pending in 174 different dockets in different districts, 100, excuse me, uh, 46 districts. And I have a citation here, reference here, where you can reach out if you want to take a look at the uh, uh, their website, MDL website, and also for the geeky types like me, uh, a, a law review article, which does a real nice job explaining the MDL process in the bellwether trials uh, that, that can take place. If you want to look at it, you have these slides to look at later. All right, so what's going on in this case, uh, uh, this case here? Um, the MDL panel, panel um, created this, this matter uh, for cases that allege AFFF products used at airports, military bases, or certain industrial locations caused the, by the release of PFO or PFAS into local groundwater contaminated drinking water supplies. So it's pretty narrow, at least initially in its scope, of those nature of claims you know, coming from AFFF at these locations. Since the transfer, uh, there have been a number of case management orders. By my count, I think 16, but there have been many subsets uh, over the four and a half years. Early on, well, no, maybe it's about a year ago, uh, the judge said we're going to we're going to do some bellwether trials, uh, and we're going to do this in two phases. Uh, we're going to pick three water provider pr provider cases, uh, and then in phase two, three personal injury cases. So the first trial is coming up. First trial is coming up in my calculation in over over two weeks, uh, and it is the case of the city of Stewart is in Florida versus 3M. Uh, next up would be AIR, that was one of the three provider cases, water provider cases, uh, and then Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So what is the Sioux Falls case about? Well, excuse me, what is the Stewart fire case about? Um, it is about what is typical in some of these AFFF cases is that you have a uh, fire station here, a fire or rescue station uh, that used large quantities of of um, AFFF during training exercises for decades and a lot behind this facility. That's what I know what happened at Barnesville County at Fire Training Academy over decades. You know, active training uh, on live fires with oil and petroleum uh, where AAA or AFFF was applied uh, for training purposes. So what are the issues that are coming up or have come up uh, in the city of Stewart case? One was, um, uh, and, and this took maybe eight months, maybe it was longer than that, to brief and get ready for oral arguments uh, and, and then have the uh, court render a decision around the government contractor immunity defense. So this is a um, doctrine of federal common law. It recognizes and under some circumstances that contractors should be protected, should be shielded from liability when they build equipment uh, for the government. Uh, and the leading case on this is a Supreme Court case in 1988, which has a three-part test, which I, I won't go into, but I can if you want to. And the bottom line in this case is that there's a summary judgment that was uh, submitted on this uh, where the uh, manufacturers sought to uh, use it to get out. The court said no. Uh, one of the standards I should say is that the U.S. approves reasonably precise specs uh, for the equipment, in this case, the foam. Uh, and the court ruled, no, as the manufacturers of the 
C8-based products at issue in this litigation, they had significantly greater knowledge than the government about the properties uh, and knowingly withheld this information uh, from, from the government. So kind of a flip of what they needed to, to show. So that was one motion that was heard last year, uh, last September. Uh, shortly after that, a mediator was appointed. Uh, mediation is ongoing. Um, as we're getting closer to trial, there are rulings that you might expect on evidentiary type issues, Dalbert motions, a motion to eliminate. And uh, most significantly, not on the slide, however, is uh, what happened on Sunday. Uh, one of the major, one of the defendants here, uh, Kitty Fenwall, uh, filed for bankruptcy, filed for bankruptcy chapter 11 uh, in Delaware, uh, did it on Sunday, Mother's Day of all things. Um, so that has put everyone in motion. Uh, the plaintiffs have a uh, have written to the court and said, we're ready to go forward. <laughs> the city of Stewart's been waiting, you know, for years to get this going. And I'm ready to go forward. We want to go forward against 3M. Get them out of there. We, we want, to, want to do this. Uh, I haven't seen the, I didn't check the docket today, so I'm not sure uh, where that stands right now, that, that request. Um, here are Stewart's claims. Uh, again, this is a product liability claim. So the claims are for strict liability, for failure to warn, for negligent failure to warn for design defect, for negligence. The damages that they're seeking for this uh, are set forth here. The cost of water treatment systems to remove the PFAS contamination, uh, the cost to repair and upgrade their systems, the loss to the city of uh, being deprived of the use of its water for a period that was required to do the replacement, damage to its property, the damage to its property to remediate the PFAS contamination. And Stewart has put some numbers around this. Um, it's put a number of a 1.5 million in damages related to the future operation, expansion, and maintenance uh, of its treatment system. It has put a number of almost about three quarters of a million for studies and reports and 31 million for uh, soil remediation. I think I saw, and I should have looked at this, on the docket that there was a motion in Lemonade to strike this uh, this, uh, this, these damages, which which failed, so the stuff is uh, still in the case. So active stuff going on in this case as it's getting ready for trial, uh, and you know just a couple of weeks away. So what's next? Well, this would be the first major nationwide PFAS litigation. It's going to set a template for what's going to come. Um, there are two other bellwether cases that that will be coming after this, and there's also the personal injury. Uh, bellwether. And that's going to get moving forward. The court, through its case management order, has set a deadline in July for the parties to uh, identify uh, who can come, who should come forward to identify plaintiffs, uh, alleging different types of uh, injury uh, to move forward with the you know, personal injury type claims in this case. And I guess one final thing of uh, what's next. Now, on, on the bigger picture, with one of the parties filing for bankruptcy, um, on the eve of trial. You know, it should cause us to think yet again, because it's, it's always coming up. We've got a billion dollars, billions of dollars of problem here arising out of the uh, PFAS, never mind just the AFFF claims. And who's going to pay? You know, we've been hearing for a while, well, we should go to the manufacturers. They're responsible. But if the overall cost is going to exceed what their assets, that's going to be a problem. And we know that the uh, uh, IRA inflation Reduction Act, or what it was, um, money, put lots of, lots of money into PFAS, but will it be enough? I'll stop there and um, 
uh, kick it over to Peter. Are you next? I think so. Great. Thanks, Bob. Um, that is a very good intro to my session. My Is my purple screen up there? Great. Um, so my name is Peter Durning. I'm a partner at Burns and Levinson. I'd like to thank the co-chairs um, from the BBA Environmental Litigation Committee, Diane Phillips from Holland and Knight, and my colleague, Peter Viteri. And I'd also like to thank my co-presenters, uh, Bob Cox and John Dargella, for, for, and the BBA staff for coordinating this program today. Um, yeah, I think it was great for Bob to lead off. I think that the MDL really is where a lot of attention is in the state. Um, as Bob said, you know the, that docket has grown from a few hundred cases to over 4,000 cases. It really is uh, gobbling up a lot of the attention. And the bellwether cases, I think, are going to have meaningful ripples throughout the country. In particular, the individual uh, plaintiff injury cases seeking to establish more firmly causation for certain ailments associated with PFAS. I think that is going to have, that's tremendously important. Um, but of course, as Bob laid out in his presentation, that the breadth of that case is also narrowed by the focus on AFFF. And as my uh, graphic shows, there are a lot of other contributions of a great variety of PFAS in the, in the environment. Um, this little version of Busy Town came from the American Water Works Association, and it provides a condensed snapshot of the myriad of ways that PFAS are emerging in communities throughout New England and throughout the country. Um, here at Burns and Levinson, we're seeing PFAS issues crop up in a variety of circumstances, particularly in real estate and corporate due diligence. Um, now with the MCP standards, we're seeing PFAS in hazardous waste sites. And with our municipal drinking water clients, we're assisting them with public relations, issues before regulators, and as we'll discuss in detail today, cost recovery claims um, to defer the capital improvements for the cost of new treatment technology. So in addition to that uh, busy town presentation, uh, credit to Stephen LaRosa from Weston and Sampson. He created this graph just showing the, the various interconnected ways that PFAS impacts can play out in every town USA. And with the crisscrossing uses and overlapping lines of potential impacts from industry to utilities to individual homes and waste sites, the cumulative result is a, is a web of cross-contamination and a potential almost circular firing squad of, of potential claims. Luckily, with advancements in science and more scrutiny of individual PFAS contaminants, you can have real fingerprinting of the particular contamination that you're dealing with. So um, these slides taken from the Interstate Technology and Regulatory Council show just two you know, differing samples of some contamination. One that's very PFOS, PFAS uh, heavy, maybe that is more likely associated with 
an AFFF release and might be a better candidate for the MDL, for example. Whereas this other PFAS sample is very low on PFOS, but has a high concentration of other constituents. And using this kind of analysis and even plotting them on um, this kind of hexagonal graph to get a, a spatial sense of what contamination you're dealing with might give you an indication of the, the type of source that you're dealing with. Again, whether or not the PFAS you're, you're addressing might be a candidate for something like the uh, MDL or whether the source of the contamination might be much more localized. Um, in addition, I'd like to point out that with here in Massachusetts, with the MCP standards and obligations, and, and particularly some of the work that Bureau of Waste Site Cleanup is doing, um, issuing RFIs, directing entities to undertake testing, with that additional data, uh, additional more local um, contributors might be uh, identified. So what I'm mostly going to talk about in contrast to the multi-district litigation, which is really looking at things at a, a national scale, is a, is a focus on what um, tools we have in the in environmental litigators toolkit to seek damages, particularly cost recovery from parties using um, the tools that we have in Massachusetts, primarily Mass General Laws, Chapter 21E, and also simple common law claims. Um, most complaints that will be brought will likely bring a variety of claims um, to provide alternate theories of recovery. And as John Gardella is gonna discuss, there are even, there are avenues beyond these that I'm going to discuss that you can pursue to get damages associated with PFAS. But my presentation is primarily focused on cost recovery. Um, I would also recommend my partner, John Shea, has an excellent um, chapter in the MCLE Environmental Law Treatise on Hazardous Waste Cleanup that addresses both Massachusetts state claims and CERCLA Superfund cost recovery actions. With the advent of EPA proposing to add PFOA and PFOA Superfund. I think there's going to be more action there in the future. Um, that's all but guaranteed, though the, the timeline for that um, could play out. But again, there are tools that an environmental litigator has right here in Massachusetts that can be used to seek cost recovery. Um, of course, with as with any other litigation matter, once the game is afoot, you have all the other attendant issues that you run into with any complex litigation, questions of corporate succession, seeking or securing sufficient assets to offset a liability, the possibility of, of joint tort feasors. All of these permutations come into play and the litigation team needs to be ready to address any corporate law or civil procedure concerns beyond just the relevant environmental issues. Under Massachusetts General Laws Chapter 21E, there are several classes of persons that have status liability, owners and operators of property, past owners and operators, arrangers and transporters. Um, but with Section 5A5, any person who otherwise caused or is legally responsible for a release or a threat of release 
this is likely the area where we'll see the most interesting action for this developing set of case law around PFAS. You know, where the status liability for an owner or an operator is well established, it's going to be hard to fight against. But when the question becomes who's legally responsible for our release of PFAS, then that fact-specific inquiry is likely going to be fought out in the courts. Um, while the availability of Section 5A5 liability might also offer an avenue to seek cost recovery against entities other than the manufacturers of PFAS compounds. Thus, while a party might have a difficult time making out a claim against a PFAS manufacturer for PFOA contamination in groundwater in Massachusetts, it may be easier to demonstrate that a local industrial actor caused or is legally responsible for the release because it disposed of PFOA through a floor drain or out of an exhaust system that eventually um, reached and contaminated a neighboring property or even a municipal water supply. In this manner, really, everything old is new again. Though we're in this fast-paced world of emerging contaminants, it's really the old toolbox that environmental litigators have used on dry cleaner uh, chlorinated solvent releases or to defend against liability and MGP waste. It's essentially the same tools. The key difference may be that with the ubiquity of PFAS in the environment, um, but again, collaborating with a good technical team and developing a good comprehensive site assessment that combines chemical analysis or fingerprinting um, with environmental factors and topography that may set up a, a good claim under 5A5. Of course, for under the statute, Section 4 of 21E provides a mechanism for parties to obtain recovery for response costs that they've incurred to remediate a, a release or a threat of release. In, in Massachusetts, even before the state had established maximum contaminant levels for drinking water, MassDEP was promulgating reporting concentrations and cleanup standards for the PFAS-6 under the MCP. The MCP regulations, which were uh, finalized in December 2019, you know, sets up the standards for remediation. So again, back to the MDL, Bob has raised some really interesting questions about injuries to plaintiffs and whether or not there will be causation uh, established for uh, kidney disease or other ailments associated with PFOS. But again, seeking cost recovery under 21E, if you are obligated to clean up to below 20 parts per trillion to comply with the Massachusetts state law, you'll have a claim for recovery against the party causing that release without respect to whether or not some of the causation issues come through um, from the MDL. And under Section 5 of 21E, you have the availability of, of recovering property damage. Section 5 damages for lost use or lost rental value are recoverable under 21E, but the property owner must prove that the injury to the property is not reasonably curable, could not be remediated uh, in order to recover under Section 5 for any diminution in property. Under General Laws Chapter 21E, any person who undertakes the necessary and appropriate response actions regarding a release is entitled to reimbursement from any other person who is liable. Um, 
again, with the, the busy town map that we had and potential contributions from a variety of, of releases, it's possible that you're going to have circumstances where two or more persons may be liable for that release. Here in Massachusetts, under Martin Gettybeese's uh, Hey Far, they incorporated the federal gore factors as an allocation tool, which are spelled out on the chart in front of you. Um, you know, this is the, the gore factors are just that factors to consider, but they are not um, exclusive. A court could um, assess proper allocation by any factors appropriate to balance the equities and the totality of the circumstances. But even so, the Gore factors are probably an important consideration uh, in that analysis. Though I have heard some practitioners say that given the unusual provenance of PFAS as an emerging contaminant, perhaps some of these factors are not as important, particularly if an operator believed that they were in compliance with the law for years of operation when they incorporated PFAS into their into their practices. Beyond 21E, of course, in the Environmental Litigators Toolkit, we have the common law actions of negligence, nuisance, and trespass. Um, to establish a claim for negligence, the plaintiffs must show that the defendant breached a duty owed to the plaintiff and thereby caused the plaintiff to sustain property damage or personal injury. A nuisance, similarly, a plaintiff must show that the defendant created, permitted, or maintained a condition on the defendant's property that caused the substantial and unreasonable interference with the use and enjoyment of that property. Trespass, another common environmental law um, action. In it, the plaintiff must show that the defendant made an unprivileged intentional intrusion onto the plaintiff's land. In the PFAS context, this is often going to be through groundwater, but parties also need to consider other viable exposure pathways, air, um, dispersion, firefighting activity, or even distribution through a town's uh, drinking water system. And just for an illustration, a matter that we handled in our, in our um, firm, you know, it, it, it takes away some of the guesswork. You know, there are gonna be harder cases uh, out on the fringes where you don't have as solid information. This one that I'm gonna walk through was teed up very well for resolution in Massachusetts. Um, we had a company that, you know, talked about and advertised that it used P PFOA, particularly containing coatings in its operations. And as shown on this chart, the um, operating business was just a few football fields away from a drinking water well. And the analysis that went through in compliance with certain MCP filings showed that the plume of contamination was migrating from that location towards the drinking water well. Uh, in addition, here are some photographs that were taken during site inspections conducted by MassDEP. In this area, the company was applying various coatings of their own uh, fabrication that contained PFOA and uh, an analysis that was those, those very blue PFOA-containing particles were on the roof, coming down the roof drains, globules are, were found on the roof. And though, you know, providing guidance to some parties on uh, business transactions, we get nervous when the limits for uh, PFOA detection get up around 20, 
Uh, in this instance, we had much higher rates of uh, PFAS, particularly PFOA use, um, that that made that case likely. Um, some issues that you're going to run into, certainly statute of limitations, um, which is a fascinating area and could likely be a program unto itself. But under 21E, particularly with the recovery of response costs under Section 4, you get three years from the last dollar spent towards cost recovery. So that's an important consideration on uh, the timeline for statute of limitations under 21E. Of course, for the common law claims, you're not going to have that somewhat delayed trigger, uh, but you'd certainly have uh, the application of the discovery rule. And I did think there was an interesting statement in the in the Barnstable County versus 3M um, discussion. In there, the district court said, when there's an inherently unknowable danger, the discovery rule provides that causes of action do not accrue until the plaintiff learns or reasonably should have learned that she has been harmed by the defendant's conduct. And what I think is interesting in, in that context, again, with Bob talking about some of the focus in the MDL on individual uh, ailments, is when does the individual know that they've been harmed? Is it when there's a public announcement that there's PFAS in a, in a drinking water source? Might it come when they get an individual uh, diagnosis from a doctor that says they're suffering from ulcerative colitis that may have a causal connection with, with PFAS? So there's probably more to be um, discussed as, as PFAS case, uh, cases emerge. Um, lastly, I'll just put up a quick shameless plug that we've launched a new environmental law blog here at Burns and Levinson, Legal Terrain. We've got an, an article coming up soon about PFAS considerations and due diligence. And with that, I'll close and turn it over to John. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Just give me a second and I will transition to my slides. All right. Well, um, thanks, Peter. That was great. And, you know, Bob as well. I think the, the critical thing, I'm glad those two started us off because, uh, you know, first of all, Bob is right. Uh, with respect to the AFFF and the MDL and everything going on there that he very nicely outlined for everyone, that's grabbing a lot of the attention, certainly the media, certainly the litigation volume right now. Um, but as Peter uh, mentioned as well, you know, there's also a lot of litigation swirling around these 21E issues that he nicely walked everyone through. Um, <clears throat> I especially love, I think it was Peter's first slide uh, by the American Water Association. Uh, that's a great slide and a great sort of representative of all the avenues of potential contamination uh, to the environment with respect to PFAS. And it kind of ties in nicely to what I'm going to talk about next. And that's sort of the rise of what we've seen nationally, uh, as well as in Massachusetts, of private citizen class action lawsuits, specifically with respect to uh, PFAS. So this is a sort of a national picture before we jump in um, these statistics and the data here. But, you know, just within this one year period that I have on the slide, we saw a 155% increase in the number of these class action PFAS lawsuits. 
again, this is excluding the AFFF uh, MDL litigation. So, you know, that that's a significant jump. And I expect the data to show something quite similar, if not even more, in 2023. Uh, the point being, the, these lawsuits are growing. They're certainly uh, capturing the interest of plaintiff's attorney, not only in Massachusetts, but nationally. Um, and specifically, uh, you know, law firms and plaintiffs at firms that have traditionally done uh, class action lawsuits are sort of jumping on the PFAS bandwagon and filing some of these lawsuits against uh, what I call downstream users. And I think that's a, a key point here. Uh, you might think that these lawsuits are, you know, against, you know, the chemical manufacturers of the world that made the PFAS, maybe even the AFFF involved uh, defendants that find themselves embroiled in the MDL, but that's not the case. Um, these class action lawsuits that are brought by private citizens uh, typically involve uh, companies that either, you know, intentionally or unintentionally and unknowingly use PFAS in some aspect of their manufacturing or industrial process. And uh, the allegation is that through that application um, and through that use of PFAS that there was an environmental discharge um, that contaminated the land, contaminated the drinking water of private citizens. So, you know, the claims often involve simple land contamination types of um, allegations, property devaluation. Um, but I think most critically, and what I'll touch on a little bit in just a minute, is that we're seeing an increase and a rise in the number of medical monitoring claims being thrown into these lawsuits as well. Um, for anyone that is sort of involved in that um, type of allegation defending it, you know that uh, Massachusetts has its own sort of uh, unique test for medical monitoring claims and whether they're viable. And we'll talk about that in a second. But nationally, the courts are very much split on this issue. Um, some states allow medical monitoring claims uh, and some states don't. You know, at their fundamental heart, all a medical monitoring claim is, is essentially an allegation against a company that says, you know, for whatever reason I have ingested this chemical, and I have a fear or a concern that in the future, uh, I will suffer some sort of personal injury, injury from this exposure. Um, so, you know, especially concerning for a lot of companies and corporations um, is how the medical monitoring uh, claims are gonna play out nationally and in the Commonwealth. Uh, because with statistics showing that 98 or 99% of the citizens in the United States have PFAS in their blood, uh, there's great concern that these these uh, claims could be successful um, and, and the damages could be extraordinarily high. Now, of course, you, you know, many of you may be scratching your head if you're not quite familiar with medical monitoring and saying, well, where's the injury? And that's precisely the question. And the reason this is such a battleground issue, um, of course, as we all know, under uh, traditional tort law, you need an injury, right? That's one of the three fundamental elements of, of tort. You need an injury in order to have a compensable claim. But with respect to uh, chemicals of concern or especially PFAS, that injury may not be there right now. Um, so these lawsuits are alleging, uh, well, I don't, I don't necessarily have an injury at the moment, but I have a concern of one in the future. So that's, that's sort of the big global picture uh, about what's going on nationally with respect to these private class action lawsuits uh, and the claims surrounding them. I'm going to highlight one that is right here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, it's currently pending in the federal court. 
Uh, it's the Ryan v. Various Defendants. Um, and it's a publicly filed lawsuit, obviously, so information is on the docket about it. Um, I'm representing several of the companies involved in that lawsuit. And again, they are these downstream uh, unintentional uh, users or applicators of PFAS in certain manufacturing processes. I, I obviously can't talk about specifics of the lawsuit that I cannot get into, but again, the complaint and the allegations that um, are raised in the complaint in this class action lawsuit are right here on the screen. So you see we've got uh, eight claims against the various defendants that have been brought into the lawsuit. Uh, and this is sort of representative with one or two exceptions that I'll get into um, of the types of class action lawsuits and the claims being brought uh, with respect to PFAS, not just in the Commonwealth, but again, nationally. And some of them seem, you know, uh, well, Peter covered some of them, actually, you know, and walked us through the basics, but I'm sure we're all familiar with, with many of them, you know, negligence, uh, both private and public nuisance are often raised. Um, and then, you know, some sort of strict liability statute, depending on which state you're in. Of course, in Massachusetts, we have the ultra hazardous activity uh, statute, and that is the strict liability stat, uh, trigger here in Massachusetts. Um, I think the two most interesting claims in this one, um, and one of them, the first one that I have truthfully never seen uh, to date in, in any other sort of chemical exposure claim, and that's the RICO uh, claim. So that's uh, the civil RICO statute of violation is, is uh, a claim that um, the parties, the defendants acted in concert, essentially, um, and acted in a way that was unlawful or improper. Uh, and they did so, again, uh, you know, sort of in concert and, and as a group and did so intentionally. Um, so the claim here is that the defendants uh, essentially knew that PFAS were in the um, waste that they were generating and they were sending it to a landfill and that not only the parties that were sending the materials to the landfill, but the landfill itself uh, were acting in concert to hide this from the public and deceive the state of Massachusetts uh, by filing improper certifications with the state for its uh, the landfilling act, uh, activities that were taking place on the site. So that's an interesting one. Again, I, I have not yet seen that uh, in any other lawsuit that I'm involved with. So um, it be very interesting to see how that one plays out. Again, there is the medical monitoring claim uh, involved in this lawsuit. I do want to highlight that. Uh, there's been no class certification at the moment. But uh, again, you know, the concern in any of these claims, PFAS related with medical monitoring is if you get a very large class certified and a successful um, um, uh, allowance by the court of a medical monitoring claim, the damages could be quite, quite high. To take this a little further in one of the um, PFAS situations that have gone uh, quite the distance so far with respect to the medical monitoring issue, uh, it's in Ohio. It's the Hardwick claim. I raise this only to, to mention and show kind of reflective of how bad the damages could potentially be because in that lawsuit, again, it's a PFAS claim um, and the medical monitoring was requested as a, as a prayer for relief. And uh, the class was certified by the lower court at 13 million people that live in Ohio. Um, now this is on appeal. But, you know, you can just understand that depending on the scope and the magnitude of a class certification in these cases, and if, again, if the medical monitoring claim is successful, you've got uh, potentially funding by defendants named in those lawsuits, uh, a medical monitoring program for over 13 million people. 
Um, I don't know what the damages would be there, but I suspect it would begin with a B and not an M. Uh, so uh, certainly another case to watch on the uh, national horizon, which will impact, of course, how things play out in Massachusetts as well. So how does, how does Massachusetts address the question of medical monitoring? Well, it, it's very interesting because it's not a state uh, like some are that say either yes or no. Um, it, it's a state that has an interesting test and the test is right here on the screen, but it, it can be found in Donovan v. Philip Morris. The site is right here on the screen as well. Um, and you can see that the court, which um, was the SGC, outlined seven specific elements that a plaintiff would have to prove in order to successfully bring a medical monitoring claim against defend, a defendant or defendants. Now, the very interesting and unique um, aspect of the Massachusetts approach is in the third element, which I've highlighted in yellow here for you. And that is the, quote, sub, sub, subcellular changes test. So, you know, let's take the Donovan case and, and apply it to that case and what the court was thinking. Well, in the case of you know, inhalation of smoking cigarette of, of smoke from cigarettes, um, the court basically looked at and heard argument on the fact that whenever anyone inhales a cigarette or inhales cigarette smoke, um, the tobacco and all the contaminants and the smoke that is caused from uh, inhaling that product, the cigarette itself, um, actually go into the body. And it has been physiologically proven by science and medicine that almost immediately, um, those sort of contaminants that find their way into the body can immediately cause subcellular changes in the body. Now, does that necessarily mean that, you know, those cellular changes will automatically and all the time lead to cancer? No, it doesn't. But the court found it sufficient and really created this test that said, if you can prove um, that there is some high degree of um, probability that subcellular changes will occur, from exposure to whatever chemical or, or toxin it may be, then the medical monitoring claim can proceed as long as the other uh, six elements in the test uh, have successfully been pled as well. So with respect to PFAS, this is in, in the Commonwealth, this is just playing out. There've been no decisions specific to PFAS and medical monitoring claims in, in the state. Um, I expect that there will be for sure. Um, and it will be very interesting to see because, you know, the plaintiffs are claiming that merely having PFAS in your body uh, is, is sufficient under the Donovan test to say that there is a uh, risk or a heart or potential for subcellular changes, which could someday lead to personal injury. Um, the counter, of course, is, well, that risk of possible subcellular change is not enough. That's not the test. And so, you know, to be successful, the plaintiffs really have to show some high degree of probability or possibility that subcellular cellular changes occur uh, almost immediately, similar to what happened in, in the uh, Donovan case from PFAS. So that's a, a battle that is going to be uh, waged, I am sure, in the courts. I encourage everyone to kind, kind of follow not only the Ryan case, but um, other cases that involve PFAS and medical monitoring in the, in the Commonwealth. So with that, I'm going to transition a bit to uh, another type of claim. Uh, I think it was Bob, that, or it may have been Peter, I'm sorry, may have mentioned this is uh, the type of claim that it's um, a consumer fraud claim. And these are very, very much um, claims that are active, and we're seeing a lot of them um, nationally with respect to PFAS. 
So first of all, what what is a consumer fraud case? Or, you know, I'll go back one slide. You often hear that these are greenwashing claims. But what what are they? Well, they're claims in in some that say that manufacturer made a manufacturer made a product and they marketed it in some way and you know use any buzzword you can think of now that is sort of in the green movement or the environmentally friendly movement. You see some of them here on the screen. There are dozens of others that we could probably list. Um, however, the plaintiffs uh, say and the lawsuits allege that despite this marketing uh, of the product uh, or of the company itself, I should add, um, the product has been tested. It contains PFAS. And since PFAS are, you know, according to many, um, the antithesis of the, sort of the green movement or safe to use or healthy or any of those things, um, you know, the company has deceived the public. And, you know, there's an actionable consumer fraud ca uh, claim. So that's in a very basic nutshell, um, the claims that are raised. Um, of course, Massachusetts has its own consumer fraud statute. Uh, you know, I think, believe every state does. And so these are uh, state-based claims. The Commonwealth has not yet seen um, any of these claims specific, specific to PFAS, but there are over uh, 30 of the claims to date, and they're growing quickly in number. Uh, the damages you see here uh, are often asked for and pled to be the full value of each item. So if you're selling, let's just say, you know, a million tubes of lipstick in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, well, the plaintiffs would say each of those million tubes of lipstick that contain PFAS uh, were sold for $10. So the damages should be $10 million plus any statutory penalties and fines and fees. Um, so that that's sort of the very basics of what these claims are saying. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, what we're seeing is the great significant increase and rise in these claims uh, right now. In 2021, we had three such claims. In 2023, as of today, uh, there are over 30, as I mentioned, PFAS consumer fraud cases that, uh, that are active. There has been some recent success in other states in defeating these claims at the very, very uh, inception, sort of at the motion to dismiss stage. But I, I urge everyone not to read too much into those tea leaves uh, and think that these are claims that will go by the wayside. They're very, very fact specific. And in fact, you know, from the rulings that the court have issued, courts have issued in the two or three cases where uh, the motions to dismiss were allowed, it actually provides sort of a roadmap for how plaintiffs can better strengthen their complaints and provide the information that the courts are going to look at and say, okay, this is sufficient in these cases. So, you know, despite the three wins, I think it's been recently in the last couple of months in these cases, I, I urge everyone not to think that this is a dying trend. I think it's quite the opposite. And to, um, I think it was Bob that mentioned before, you know, personal injury claims uh, with respect to consumer products, they're not there yet. You know, the science is not there yet. We don't have dose information that you need to kind of prove those claims. Um, these claims, the consumer fraud claims, the greenwashing claim, claims are right now for the plaintiff's bar filling the gap, filling the void with respect to PFAS. Um, these are relatively easy claims to bring and to sometimes succeed on. You don't have to get knee deep into the science. You don't have to get neck deep into dose. Uh, you basically just have to, a lot of times, pass the motion to dismiss stage, uh, and then it becomes sort of a um, waging war on the discovery front, and a war of attrition is the plaintiff's bar's hope um, to get the defense to just settle and end it for something that's reasonable. So this is very much uh, where they are 
uh, laying a lot of their eggs right now with respect to PFAS litigation. This and obviously the class action lawsuits, which can be quite lucrative, but require a lot more investment of time and costs. Uh, it's where we're seeing things play out. So I want to thank everyone again. I want to thank Bob. I want to thank Peter for presenting with me today. And I, as Peter and Bob mentioned as well, I just want to thank everybody at the Boston Bar Association, everyone on the committee who invited me and asked me to speak today. Um, it's certainly a topic that I think all of us are very much involved with and, and love. So <laughs> uh, happy to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, Peter. And thanks, Bob. Uh, very informative stuff. Uh, we have a few minutes now, so um, we can open things up to questions from the audience if uh, anybody has some. Um, I don't see any in the Q&A, but if you want to ask, feel free to enter some questions in. Um, otherwise, we can end early. Can I ask John a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get into oh, it. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. On the, the subcellular uh, standard that's set forth in Massachusetts case law and PFAS in blood. So I gather we no medical opinions out there. Uh, we've Not got yet. nothing in the data that connects the two. I guess it depends on what side you're on, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it hasn't played out in litigation yet. That much I can say. Yeah. Okay. No. Right, we got one question. Uh, can any of you speak to insurance implications on these issues? I can weigh in a little bit, um, particularly on cost recovery issues that I was discussing. We have seen insurers step up uh, and acknowledge uh, coverage to provide for property owners that have PFAS contamination on their property. Um, so, you know, those aren't necessarily the same kind of uh, really catastrophic kind of damages that are at issue in John's cases, perhaps. But for procuring environmental insurance policies for, uh, again, for pollution and, and cost recovery, it is available. And we, we have seen insurance companies step up. I, that, would, that would be my quick summary. Yeah, I guess I could just add to that, Peter. Uh, I'm not a coverage attorney, so I don't I don't have any direct experience dealing with that. Um, but I do know that obviously nowadays there's PFAS exclusions uh, in virtually every insurer that's out there is 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 offering that. But with respect to historical claims, kind of like the one that I mentioned uh, in my example, uh, it it's sort of all dependent. There, is, there are some insurers that are covering some of them, but there are some that are declining coverage, and it all depends on the policy language, uh, the years that are applicable, and truthfully, when the um, so-called release uh, uh, occurred in the lawsuits. That's been our experience here, and I can defer to our coverage attorneys to you know, help out on, on that, but it's been a real mixed bag, and the most recent was now, <laughs> so it's fresh in my mind. Because of a pollution exclusion. Right, we got a couple more. Um, have you observed a specific product or industry focus by plaintiffs' firms pursuing class actions in mass? Mm. Um, yeah, a couple come to mind. Um, you know, the the paper industry has been one for sure. Uh, the landfilling or waste management companies have been another. Uh, and then there have been some examples of, you know, like electronics or electrical component 
manufacturers that historically and traditionally have uh, used or had components that have been brought in from overseas that used uh, PFAS and the issues there are, uh, you know, uh, water effluent discharges and, as well as landfilling issues. So those are just three that kind of stand out. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, of course, the, the MDL is itself essentially an industry sector action. Very true. <laughs> and do you think PFOS regulation might mirror legislative solutions for asbestos at some point? I'll, I'll start. I, too early to tell. There's a, there's a long way to go here. And um, as we, as I think about it in terms of the numbers uh, for costs associated here, at, at some point, as we've seen historically, there is a balance between the standard uh, and, uh, and, the, and the cost. But that's ways down the road, I think. Yeah, I, I think I'd echo Bob's comment. I think it's entirely possible. I, it's difficult. I think there's uh, the the... Two things can be happening at the same time. On the one hand, P PFAS is such a big problem, it seems like the wheels are turning slowly to uh, deal with it and address it. At the same time, uh, a lot of progress has been made and, and more is on the horizon. Something like a legislative solution, um, as, as occurred with asbestos, is entirely within the realm of possibility. But, um, you know, there really has been kind of halting progress on PFAS. I, I guess I would say nationally, the Biden administration has set forth its strategic roadmap. It has been uh, putting notches in its belt, um, making progress towards that, so that it's far more accelerated than, than it was previously. But some of their actions are still going to come under scrutiny. I fully imagine that when the uh, final rulemaking is done, for naming PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances under CERCLA, that's likely going to face um, a litigation challenge, and which which could in part be informed by the uh, causation analysis being done in the in the MDL. But for right now, I, I think John's response to one of the other questions uh, indicated that that depends which side you're on. There is a dispute uh, on the science, which which is a bit troubling that it's not as concrete, that it hasn't been as established, the, the medical impacts. Um, and where some ambiguity remains, then some of the results are going to be contested, um, which could make a legislative fix, as the question um, posits, difficult to achieve. But, but it's entirely possible. Yeah, I would just add, I know we're might be out of time here. I would just add, I think I agree with everything Bob and Peter just said. You know, I, to, in order to sort of get uh, get things under control with respect to the potential damages at issue with all the PFAS litigation issues that we've all three of us have talked about, you really need wide and encompassing tort reform of some degree. And, you know, I think as Peter mentioned, you know, especially with respect to asbestos, that's been very slow to happen. And asbestos litigation has been around since the 1980s. So the MO right now, as Peter just nicely said, and the EPA is notching, uh, getting notches in its belt, the MO right now is to push forward change and uh, regulation, and the litigation is going to follow that. There's not a huge incentive at the moment to sort of protect or carve out 
or, or mitigate damages in some way. The, I've, I've been surprised to see the success that certain industries have had uh, gaining support in the legislature, uh, specifically with the uh, Republican out of Wyoming, uh, Cynthia Loomis, in creating potential carve-outs to the CERCLA uh, designation of PFAS. I've been surprised to see that. But that's very limited. You know, there are three, there are two, maybe three industries that may have some chance of getting that. But beyond that, on a wide scale basis, uh, I think, as Peter said, it's going to be uh, slow moving. And I don't see that in the immediate future. Yeah, I would just add that I think the concern of exposure is different also. I mean, with asbestos, it's essentially a remediation, uh, legislative solutions that are, you know, licensure of remediation. Um, Performers. So basically, it's making sure you when you when you remove it from a building that you don't cause a you know a, a dust or friable issues. The the PFOS exposure is a little bit different. It's in drinking water. It could be in the air. Um, you know, it could be on uh, food food wrappers and things like that. So I I think the the exposure is a little bit different and the remediation is a little bit different. So I think the approach to um, to you know legislatively is going to be different. I, there are you know bans on production, continued production. And I think you'll probably continue to see those bans expand to perhaps the entire class of PFOS and other kinds of newer replacement chemicals like Gen X that sort of mimic what PFOS did instead of uh, you know the bans I think that are limited to PFOA or PFOS. So that might be where you see the legislative solutions. Um, my opinion there. So I think uh, I think that's we're a little bit over time now. So I think we'll wrap up. I just want to uh, add a reminder that in uh, mid June, uh, be on the lookout for uh, the second half of the program, which is our uh, PFOS regulatory update presented by the BBA. Um, and other than that, thank you everybody for attending and have a good day. Great. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, everyone. Great presentations. Great. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.